you know, at the center of every human life, there is a throne. And whoever or whatever occupies that throne is what rules our lives. And whatever rules our lives is, of course, what we spend our lifetime serving. In fact, if you read the Bible from one end to the other, you will find that what has occupied the throne of the majority of people's lives throughout biblical history is exactly what occupies the throne of the majority of people's lives today. It's themselves. Most people place themselves on the throne at the center of their own lives. It's our human nature to do so, which is why, uh, it's why most people work and plan and live out their lives in ways that are primarily self-serving, which you would think would result in a lot of really happy, satisfied, fulfilled people. And yet what we find is often just the opposite. Some of the most affluent and affluential people in the world are deeply unhappy, dissatisfied, unfulfilled. Just look, uh, just look at the number of rich and famous people who've taken their own lives in the past few years. Yet on the contrary, I think one of the happiest, most satisfying and fulfilling moments a human being can experience is when you finally come to the realization that it's not about you. That this life... The reason you exist, the purpose you were created to live for is ultimately not about you. It's the very message that Jesus taught. And by the way, it's one that his own disciples had to learn before they would be able to live beyond themselves, beyond the, uh, the self-absorbed, self-focused, self-serving lives that all human beings naturally gravitate toward. And look... Uh, those early disciples didn't fully understand that in their own lives until well after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. In other words, they were believers and followers of Jesus Christ long before they allowed him to fully occupy that throne in their own lives. And I think as believers and followers of Jesus Christ today, we often share that same struggle. In fact, I believe the modern church has been guilty of promoting a version of Christianity that focuses more on the Christian than it does on the Christ. There are a lot of Christian books being written and sermons being preached and articles being published these days that promote the life of the Christian far more than they do the life of Christ. And in doing so, listen... We're fostering generations of Christians who believe it's okay to conform God's word to fit their lifestyle rather than conforming their lifestyle to fit God's word. Christians who assign a higher value to personal feelings than they do to objective truth. Christians who are convinced that because God is loved, then clearly he must affirm everything that they believe about themselves. R.C. Sproul once asked the question, do you love the biblical Christ? The qualifier is necessary because people are prone to declare their belief in a Jesus who has nothing to do with the man depicted in the biblical record. How is it, how is it that we've come so far from the actual teachings of Jesus Christ and the rest of the Bible? Well, it's simple. By focusing more on ourselves, than we do on Jesus Christ. 
right? When you're at the center of your own universe, it stands to reason that nothing is more important than what you think or what you feel or what you believe, regardless of what the word of God may say to the contrary. You see, if Jesus is not on the throne of our own heart and mind, then what he says will always come second to what you feel. One of our pastors sent me an article this week about progressive Christianity in our modern church culture. The author of the article says, one of the main differences between progressive Christianity and historic Christianity is its view of the Bible. Historically, Christians have viewed the Bible as the word of God and authoritative for our lives. Progressive Christianity generally abandons these terms, emphasizing personal belief over biblical mandate. And the article goes on to describe this progressive Christianity in greater detail, which, by the way, much of the Western church is panting after today because it draws larger crowds. Why? Because it focuses on personal feelings. In other words, it allows us to focus on self rather than focusing on Jesus Christ and the self-denial that he actually taught. And interestingly, at the same time, one of our pastors sent out that article about progressive Christianity. One of our missionaries sent out an urgent prayer request. It reads, The general superintendent of the Burkina Faso Assemblies of God is asking for prayer for his nation, our pastors, and the churches they represent. This past weekend, Pastor Peter Andrago, not related to Michael, was mentioned earlier in the request, and the local church he serves in northern Burkina Faso was attacked by jihadists. The terrorists executed Pastor Andrago and five other men. The attackers told him to leave his church and the people and they would leave him alone. He refused. At least one of the victims was a son of Pastor Andrago. This makes four pastors killed in the recent past. Burkina Faso has enjoyed decades of thriving church growth, but it is in a region of Africa where Islamic extremism is growing. Pastors are being encouraged by local leadership to evacuate, but in great boldness, local pastors are choosing to sleep in their churches, saying, if they kill us, at least we will be in the churches that represent Jesus in our communities. Pastor Indrago was also quoted as saying, I would rather die for Christ than leave my village. Can you see the difference? When Christians are focused on themselves, they serve their own feelings above everything else. And because the church simply cannot and should not validate and affirm everyone's feelings about everything all the time, they abandon the church the moment something offends them. And yet when Christians are truly focused on Christ, they serve Jesus and his church above everything else to the point they're willing to die for Jesus and his church. I'm pretty sure those pastors in Burkina Faso didn't feel like dying that day. But somewhere along the way, they came to understand that this life is not about them. It's about Jesus Christ. And so today we're starting a new sermon series working our way through the gospel according to Mark which was written by a man who had to learn this very same lesson and I'm telling you he learned it the hard way as we'll see and, and look this is a lesson that every one of us needs to learn if we haven't already that it's not about you it's not about me at the end of the day your life was created to glorify Jesus Christ above any other purpose which is what happens when you focus on him instead of on yourself 
Just some quick backstory about the author here before we read. Mark is John Mark, the same John Mark who traveled with his own uncle Barnabas and the Apostle Paul on their missionary journey together, and we'll come back to that later. And yet, not being one of the original 12 disciples, Mark had to rely on information from others for some of the stories in his gospel account. And of course, we know from many ancient records who he received that information from. Uh, the early church fathers, Papias, uh, Eusebius, Irenaeus, they all tell us that John Mark was the Apostle Peter's personal secretary and that his work on this gospel account was largely directed by Peter himself. So in many ways, this is also the gospel according to Peter. Papias, the, the bishop of Heropolis in AD 120, wrote that the Apostle John told him directly that although Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples, he was Peter's personal writer, and as such he wrote down accurately the words of Peter concerning Jesus Christ, which is what makes this gospel account reliable and indeed apostolic in its origin. There's also quite a bit of uh, internal evidence in Mark's gospel itself to suggest that Peter was the original source of much of the material. First of all, uh, he's particularly vivid when recounting the events that specifically involve Peter. Secondly, he omits all of the praiseworthy references to Peter that are included in both Matthew and Luke, which would suggest Peter's personal input because of the modesty there about himself in the writing, which was common among uh, biblical authors at the time. And thirdly, there are significant similarities between Peter's speech at Caesarea in Acts 10, 34 through 43, and this account, uh, Mark's account of the gospel. And so, uh, with a sheer volume of internal and external evidence, it's widely accepted that Peter is the source of much of Mark's gospel account, and yet, it is still distinctly the work of John Mark in many ways as well, as we'll see. So, we're going to read the, uh, about the first half of chapter 1 today and see what Mark has to teach us about living a life wholly focused on Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to begin by reading the first 11 verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie." I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. If you read uh, through all four of the Gospels, especially the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, meaning the three that parallel one another, the immediate contrast that you will find with Mark compared to the others 
is the lack of background or character development leading up to the coming of Christ in Mark's gospel. Whereas Matthew begins with a lengthy genealogy, then the story of Mary and Joseph and the angel of the Lord and the wise men and Herod and then an in-depth look at John the Baptist. Luke begins with the story and development of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, and then the angel Gabriel, and then Mary and Joseph, and then Mary's song, and then the story of John's birth, and then the prophecy of Zechariah, and then the shepherds and the angels, and again, an in-depth look at John the Baptist. Even the Gospel of John develops this character of John the Baptist far more leading up to the baptism of Jesus, whereas Mark... He starts right off from verse 1 saying, this is the story about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then after only seven verses on John the Baptist, he thrusts the reader straight into the life of Christ. The other Gospels spend whole chapters developing these other characters. Even the story of the temptation of the Christ is laid out in great detail in Matthew and in Luke, while Mark barely gives it a mention in the first chapter. So why is that? Why does Mark almost ignore these other key characters in the life of Christ? Well, it's because of his own experience learning the hard way that his life was ultimately not about him. You see, although Mark was not one of those original 12 disciples, he was very much a part of their lives early on. Right after Herod had uh, James beheaded and Peter put in prison, many of those early disciples gathered together to pray for Peter. And in Acts 12, 12, we find out where they all went to pray. It was a place where they actually gathered often to pray, as we see in other places in Scripture. It was Mary's house, Mary being the mother of John Mark. Peter refers to him as Mark, my son, in 1 Peter 5, 13. Not a physical son, but a spiritual son, indicating, of course, Peter's closeness to the young John Mark. And then in Mark 14, 51... And 52, there's a story of a young man who follows Jesus after his arrest as Jesus is being led away by the soldiers. And it says that just after all of the disciples left him and fled, this young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Many scholars believe the young man was none other than John Mark, as the incident is only recorded in this gospel, and also because the name of the young man is left out, which would typically, again, indicate modesty on the part of the author. Uh, And, of course, we know from Acts 13.5 that John Mark accompanied the apostles Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey to Asia Minor and to uh, Cyprus. So, clearly... Mark was quite close with those early disciples, and obviously he was a follower of Christ himself, a disciple of Christ himself, and yet when he's finally given an assignment, and what an assignment it was to travel and work with Paul and Barnabas, planting churches, probably experiencing for the first time the full weight of the sacrifice and hardship involved in being a true follower of Jesus, Mark abandons his brothers in Christ. And he runs back home to Jerusalem. And we know from Acts 15 that it wasn't an amicable split. Because when it came time for Paul and Barnabas to leave on another assignment later, Paul refuses to take take John Mark with them, even though Barnabas insists upon it. Paul fires John Mark. And it creates such a bitter argument between Paul and Barnabas that these two partners in the ministry split and go their separate ways. You see, at this point, 
Mark hadn't figured out yet that his life was not his own. The good news, however, is that we know from several other places in Scripture that Mark eventually comes full circle, being reconciled to the ministry and to the Apostle Paul and to the others. He became a very valuable part of their lives and ministry, and indeed to the church. As a result, Mark becomes the hero of the faith. One of the, uh, the biblical authors, of course, and ancient church tradition tells us he became a bishop of the early church and ultimately a martyr for the sake of the gospel, which brings us back to why Mark wrote his gospel account the way that he did. You see, after walking out on his brothers in Christ in the middle of their journey, after being more concerned with himself and his own feelings than he was with the work that he was called to do for the sake of Christ and his church, Mark finally came to the realization that his life was not his own, that it wasn't about him. And coming back into fellowship with the church and its leadership, he was determined to make sure that every single aspect of his life from that point forward was focused on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And that included the writing of this gospel. And so it is widely held by scholars that Mark intentionally omits the names and details of a lot of other people's lives in the story of the Christ, not because they weren't important, but because he wanted the focus of this gospel account to be on Jesus alone. So he doesn't talk about the genealogies of Jesus. He doesn't talk about Zechariah or Elizabeth or Mary or Joseph or the angels or the shepherds or the wise men or Herod or even uh, Satan other than a brief mention in the story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness not because those people weren't important in the story but simply because Mark only wanted people to see and hear Jesus when they saw and heard Mark and so even in his description of the work of John the Baptist, Mark is careful to point out the focus of everything that John was doing in his very brief description. In spite of his own wild popularity, John the Baptist's wild popularity among the masses of people, everything that John did was focused on Jesus Christ, and Mark is careful to point that out. So Mark skips all the history, all the background that makes John special, and he simply says, this was John's message. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I'm not worthy to take off his shoes. You see, John understood that this life wasn't about him. As popular as he was. Verse 5 says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem... We're going out to him and we're being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. As popular and effective as John's ministry was, he understood that none of it was about him. Ultimately, all of his work, all of his effort, all of his labor was all for Jesus. That's the lesson John understood. That's the lesson that Mark had to learn, and it is the same lesson we must understand today. Listen, if you're a Christian, then you work for Jesus, not yourself. When you, when you go to your job, you may think you are, but you're not working to make a better life for yourself. 
No, if you're a Christian, when you go to your job, you're working to bring glory to Jesus Christ, which means he had better be reflected in everything that you say and in everything that you do and in everything you produce at that job because you're working for him, not for yourself. Is there a direct benefit to you in that job? Of course there is. Because when you labor for Christ, he meets all of your needs. But let's be clear. Your primary purpose for going to that job is not a paycheck or to build a career. No, it is to glorify Jesus Christ through every single ounce of work you do. If you're raising children, you're not working to produce happy, healthy, productive members of society. No, you're working to bring glory to Jesus Christ through those children, which of course means they may well be happy, healthy, productive members of society. We all pray they are when you raise them in the ways of Christ, but those are simply byproducts of lives that glorify Him. If you're a student, listen, you're not working to simply earn a certain grade so you can earn a certain degree. You may think you are, but you're not. You're working to bring glory to Jesus Christ in how you study, in how you learn, and in how you mature as a child of God in the process. Is there a reward for studying hard and working hard in school? Of course there is, but that is simply one of the indicators that you strive for excellence. Why? In order to glorify Christ in your work. Okay, if you're a Christian, you work for Jesus, not for yourself. And the truth is, if you've grown up in church or studied the Bible much, you probably already know all that. Here's the part you may not know. In verses 9 through 11, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, which marked the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and the end of John's. And yet this was the pinnacle the very height of John's ministry. He was wildly successful at this very moment in producing spiritual fruit for the sake of the kingdom. So why in the world would you stop now? Why not work side by side with Jesus, with the results he's getting? Why in the world would John stop doing what he's doing? It's because John was working for Jesus, not for himself. And Jesus said it was time for some things to change. I'm just wondering, how many of you have heard the voice of the Spirit of Christ in your life telling you that it's time for some things to change? But because of success or income or a comfortable life that you've built for yourself, you've been hesitant or maybe even unwilling to make those changes. Listen, just because you're successful, just because you're getting results doesn't mean Jesus won't show up and tell you it's time to make some big changes in your life. And it is in those very moments that you must remind yourself who it is you're working for. I can speak to this from firsthand experience. I was running two successful businesses for years, plenty of income, a very comfortable life, and yet at the very height of my own success, Jesus said, it's time for a change. What a change it was for, uh, from success and income and comfort to selling everything, moving 5,000 miles away and starting all over again. I'm telling you, it was humiliating and exhilarating all at the same time. Going to work for someone else, going back to school, Right, little income and certainly not the level of comfort we were used to, but ultimately it led us here to you, 
to plant this church, to a ministry I never would have imagined in my wildest dreams. Has it been easy? Not by a long shot. Has it been worth it? You better believe it. Yet none of this would have happened if we hadn't been willing to recognize who it is we were working for. You see, it's not about us. It's about Him. And so look, don't assume that because you're successful today that Jesus is not going to call you to make some big changes tomorrow. In fact, I'll just tell you, I personally believe He's already speaking to some of you about making those changes, but because of success or income or comfort, you're resisting those changes. Listen, don't forget who it is you're working for. Let's keep reading, verses 12 through 15. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So again, we get very little detail from Mark about these events because he doesn't want to draw our attention away from Jesus, but the detail we are given tells us a lot about the journey that God leads us on in this life. And I just want to mention here that the very first part of that journey, for every single one of us, immediately after salvation, the very first thing we're commanded to do is to be baptized in water, which is what we see all throughout Scripture. Yet I personally know many Christians who have never taken that step in obedience to God's word as if it's not a priority for the follower of Christ today. And they'll say things like, well, water baptism is not what saves us. Well, that's true. We're saved by grace through faith alone. But look, if Jesus, the perfect son of God, if he found it necessary to be baptized in water to fulfill all righteousness, as he put it in the same story in Matthew 3.15, then how in the world can we as professing Christians today possibly try and justify not being water baptized? Well, the answer is we cannot justify it. Because we're clearly commanded in his word over and over and over again to be baptized in water. Jesus says it in Matthew 28, 19. Peter says it in Acts 2, 38. Ananias says it to Paul in Acts 22, 16. We see Philip and Paul and Peter and others all throughout the New Testament carrying out that command in obedience to God's word immediately after salvation. So listen, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized in water, I'm urging you today Take care of that as soon as possible. And if you're wondering how to make that happen, I'll tell you one very simple way is to put your name on a sign-up sheet, which you can do 24-7. It's on our website, it's on our mobile app, and we will make time to make that happen for you. Okay, Even if it's something you don't particularly want to do, that is not a valid reason to refuse being baptized because, listen, it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and testifying to the world through baptism what he has done in you. In fact, when it comes to this journey of following Christ, we will unquestionably at times be led by the Spirit of God to go places and do things that we don't always want to do. 
Verse 10 says that when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Just the study of, those, of that sentence in the original language, we don't have time to do it today, of the heavens being torn open will blow your mind. The heavens were torn open. The Spirit descended on him like a dove. That sounds wonderfully peaceful and enjoyable. Until you read verses 12 and 13, which tells us that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Bible scholar David Garland says it this way, The Spirit's descent on Jesus does not induce a state of inner tranquility. It drives him deeper into the desolate desert and into the clutches of Satan and the wild beasts for 40 days. Think about that. The Spirit comes upon Jesus. And the result of the Spirit of God coming upon him is Jesus immediately being driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be with Satan and a bunch of wild animals for 40 days. And what about John the Baptist? After his faithful service to God, well, he's thrown in prison and as we learn later in the story, beheaded because of his stand for Christ. Listen, we need to pay attention to these passages of Scripture because they're trying to tell us something profoundly important. Your journey serves Jesus, not yourself. Of course, we're blessed along the way. Yes, of course, he meets our needs, and in many ways, he gives us the desires of our hearts. Absolutely. But listen, if you think for one second that the Spirit of God will never lead you into harm's way for the sake of Christ, then you are sorely mistaken. Because this journey that you're on as a Christian is ultimately, it's not about you. It's about him, which means at times in your life, if you're truly following Christ, he will lead you places you do not want to go. And that's okay. Because your journey's meant to serve his interest far more than it serves yours, at least this side of heaven. I don't think Paul wanted to be beaten any more than Jesus wanted to be crucified or John the Baptist wanted to be beheaded. And I don't think our pastors in Burkina Faso wanted to be martyred. But sometimes the Spirit of Christ leads us into harm's way for His purposes, not ours. Listen, I'll be the first person to tell you I'm thankful, believe me, that most of us will never be led into that depth of persecution in our lifetime. But that doesn't mean the Spirit won't lead you to places in your life at times that you do not particularly want to go. And it is in those very moments that you have to decide whether or not you're going to submit to the leading of the Spirit in your life or abandon the journey that He has you on. Because sometimes he's going to lead you to love people who will never love you back. I guarantee it. Sometimes he's going to lead you to give far more than you want to give. Sometimes he's going to lead you to serve where you do not feel like serving. Sometimes he's going to lead you to risk what you never thought you'd have to. Sometimes he's going to lead you to lay everything on the line for him. And in that moment, you're going to be confronted with the reality that this journey you're on is ultimately not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And only you can decide in that moment whether to run away 
or to do what he's leading you to do, even when that's not what you want to do. Watchman Nee, the great 20th century Chinese author and church leader who spent the last 20 years of his life being persecuted in a Chinese prison, wrote, For God, no cost is too high. Anything can be sacrificed if only we may please him. Let us daily learn to be obedient children. Ultimately, this journey we're on is great of a life as it is. When we live it for him, ultimately it is still meant to serve Jesus and his interest far more than it does ours, at least in this life. Let's finish the story for today then, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The Sea of Galilee is actually an inland lake. It's about seven miles wide and 13 miles long. It's fed by the Jordan River to the north and emptied by the Jordan in the south. And it was an amazingly beautiful and productive place for fishermen in the first century. In fact, uh, the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus thought it was so beautiful that he referred to it as the pride of nature. He also recorded that at the time of the, the uh, Roman invasion of Palestine in the year 68, that they, the Romans commandeered fishing boats from the Sea of Galilee, some 250 of them, which is a testament to the pro productivity of that uh, particular lake for fishing businesses. In fact, uh, there were many types of fish in the Sea of Galilee that couldn't be found anywhere else, so they were caught and export, exported for high profits to other countries. The point being, uh, we often think of these disciples as these poor, beleaguered, poverty-stricken fishermen just struggling to get by in their impoverished state who were happy to drop what they were doing and follow Jesus in the hopes of finding a better life when actually many of them were quite well-off businessmen running lucrative family businesses. It's attested to by the fact that they had hired servants working for them, as we see in verse 20. Yet when Jesus called them, these wealthy men, dropped those businesses, abandoned their income, their wealth, their security, their comfort, their way of life, and they followed Jesus. Now put yourself in their sandals. Think about your job, your business, your home, your lifestyle, your way of life. Are you willing to abandon all of that to follow Jesus into something entirely different if that's what he calls you to do? And before you say, well, that's not my calling, I just want to caution you. Because it's not your calling. It's his calling. He has called every single one of us to go out into the world and make disciples. Which means if you are not actively making disciples of Jesus Christ in your life, then you are not answering his call on your life. Many Christians lose sight of the fact that your calling comes from Jesus, not yourself. And again, the fact is, it's, it's not your calling at all. It's His. We have a tendency to talk about my calling a lot. 
People are constantly asking the question, what is my calling? Or I'm trying to discover my calling in life. Well, it's not your calling that you need to discover. It's His. And it happens to be the same, by the way, for every one of us to go and make disciples. And so whatever you end up doing in your life, if it doesn't involve making disciples, then without question, you have missed your calling. Because we're all called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so listen, what people are actually looking for when they say they're trying to discover their calling, it's not the calling itself because we know what that is. What they're searching for is the way that calling is to be carried out in their life. Because look, you can be a preacher or a doctor or an electrician or a business owner or a parent or a student or an artist, many things, and make disciples of Jesus Christ. The calling is exactly the same. How that calling is realized in your life, well, that's different for everyone. You understand, the call itself comes the moment Jesus calls you to follow him. And that can come in a burning bush, in a blinding light, in an altar call at church, or a simple prayer with a friend at a coffee shop. The moment Jesus calls you to follow him, the moment you become a Christian, you have received your life's calling to go and make disciples. But how you carry out that calling, now that part is unique to you. And so, look, if... If you're still searching to fulfill the call of Christ on your life because you're not exactly sure how he intends you to do that, well, I'm going to tell you something that will help you discover that specific path to his calling on your life that is unique to you. It's summed up in two words. Serving others. Listen, the only way the call of Christ will ever be fulfilled in your life is through serving others. In fact, you cannot discover that calling by serving yourself. But that's exactly what a lot of people try to do. It'll never work because the calling is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and his church, his people. And so if you're serious about wanting to fulfill the call of Christ on your life, and yet you have no idea what that is, what it looks like, how you're going to do it, and you want to discover that, how you're supposed to carry out that calling, then listen, start serving God's people, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will find your purpose. It might not happen immediately, but you will over time through faithful, committed service. And at this point in the conversation, there's always someone who says, yeah, but I don't know what area I should serve in. Listen, it doesn't matter. Just start serving. Start serving others. It doesn't matter what area of ministry it's in. Just serve. And that may very well not be ultimately the area of service that God has designed you for but I promise you the way you get there is by serving others even if you don't start where ultimately you end up I served in many different areas of ministry as an adult for 18 years before I came to the realization that God created me to be a pastor of a local church but that realization only came because I was already serving in the local church in other areas. And so I was given an opportunity one day to fill in in a senior pastoral position just as a fill-in person while the church was searching to hire someone permanently for that position. You see, the only reason I was asked to fill in as the pastor of that church was because I was already serving in that church faithfully in other areas. And through that 
experienced what had never, I'm telling you, what had never once entered my mind in my entire life, not even for a moment, all of a sudden became crystal clear. I'm supposed to pastor a local church. This is what he designed and created me for. And it only took me 18 years of church ministry to figure that out. Listen, it probably won't take you that long. But I know this. It will not ever happen if you're not already serving God's people. The call of Christ is always, always, always realized through serving others. There are no exceptions. And so if you want to fulfill the call of Christ on your life, start serving because there is no other way. And if you are serving, then keep serving faithfully. And I'm telling you, you will eventually discover your purpose in God's timing. Listen, I want to be clear about something today because I know this is a bit of a hard message. Jesus loves you. He loves you enough to leave heaven. <laughs> he loves you enough to come here. Reign and all. He loves you enough to live a perfect life on earth for you despite all of the temptation and persecution. He didn't sin once. He loves you enough to die for you. He loves you enough to forgive you for every sin you've ever committed and every sin you're ever going to commit. He loves you. And he wants the very best for you. But listen, the very best for you is him. That's why he calls us to focus on him and not ourselves. That's, uh, that's the paradox of the gospel. The fact that in order to live the absolute best life you could ever live for yourself, you first have to realize that it's not about you at all. That's when you begin to discover the greatest blessings this life has to offer, the deepest satisfaction, the ultimate fulfillment, and all of that comes when you focus on Jesus Christ instead of yourself. And yet if he is not on the throne in your heart and mind, then what he says will always come second to what you feel. And I'm telling you, chasing after feelings apart from Christ will ultimately leave you empty. This is the lesson that John Mark had to learn. And it is the lesson that we too must learn because listen, Jesus is calling you. He's calling you to go on a journey with him. A journey that will profoundly change your life and the way you're living it. And the best part is, it's not dependent upon how well you can perform or who you can impress or what you can produce because it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and what he produces inside of you when you stay focused on him instead of yourself. This was his call on the life of a young man named John Mark. This was his call on the life of a prophet named John the Baptist. This was his call on the lives of those early disciples who gave everything for him. And it is his call on the life of every single person in this room today. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray.